Let's pray again together because we trust God to help us understand and apply his word. Father, we do thank you for those of us who are in Christ Jesus that you have given us the great privilege of being your children, your sons and daughters, belonging to you. Thank you for the privilege of allowing us to be followers of Jesus, to grow to be more like him, and to testify to him to others. We pray that you would use your word this morning to help us see who you are better, understand ourselves more clearly, and respond rightly to what it is that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. In our journey through Acts, we find ourselves with Paul and Silas in Philippi. Timothy and Luke have also joined the missionary team in this phase. In Philippi, they have encountered a group of first of God-fearing women who meet on the Sabbath by the river as their place of prayer. One of these women, named Lydia, becomes the first follower of Jesus here, and she also becomes host to these three missionaries in her home while they're in this community. But as Paul and Silas continue their ministry in Philippi, a demon-possessed slave girl keeps calling attention to them in a way that seems to make Paul concerned about becoming associated with this evil. So Paul casts the demon out in the name of Jesus. This is beneficial to the girl, but her owners are extremely unhappy about this because they were using her to generate income from her fortune-telling. So Paul and Silas end up dragged before the two Philippian magistrates in the agora of the town. They're accused without a trial, soundly beaten with rods, and imprisoned. That's where we find them at the moment, in prison. Now, as we observe what happens in Philippi, what should we take away as an emphasis to apply, especially the second half here of Acts chapter 16? We're going to focus our attention on responding rightly to the opportunities that God provides. As with God opening Lydia's heart to the gospel, in verse 14, when Paul faithfully proclaimed Jesus as the Christ, we must always remain aware of God's initiative and activity. God is taking initiative. God is working, but we need to be alert to the opportunities that God is affording us. An opportunity, for example, to repent and turn in faith to Jesus. Opportunities for faithfulness as his followers. Opportunities for growth. Opportunities, especially we see today in this text, opportunities for gospel witness and word ministry. The first opportunity for Paul and Silas comes in an unlikely form through their suffering. I'm going to back up to verse 23 just to remind you the context that they're in in verse 25. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safe, safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison. The inner prison must signify some part of, of the, 
the prison that is the most secure. And it says, too, that he fastened their feet in the stocks, which would have been pieces of wood with holes cut out in them for their, their legs to fit in there so they could be secured. And they, they would have had a hinge on one side to put their legs in there. And they, they had multiple holes in these things so that they could spread their feet far apart in an uncomfortable way. It was meant to be uncomfortable. And then verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Persecution and suffering provide opportunity for dependence on God and praise to God. Honestly, this has a lot to do with the way that hardship alters our perspective. It brings to the surface where our deep-seated trust truly lies. Are we depending on ourselves or on God? Do we believe that God is praiseworthy, that he is good and he is glorious only when things are great with our circumstances? Paul and Silas are imprisoned, not knowing how things are going to turn out, and they respond with prayer and praise, and those around are listening to them. Here's another thing I want you to notice here. Don't overlook the fact that in this hardship and response of prayer and praise, they are not completely alone. Paul and Silas have each other, have a fellow believer beside them. Paul notes elsewhere how difficult it is emotionally when we feel alone in our suffering. He says this in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9 through 13. He discusses what it's like for, for some to desert him because they're going after the things of the world or others to be gone because they're involved in ministry, but it's just him and Luke. And he feels the emotional loneliness of that. Because we are believers, we are in Christ Jesus and we have the indwelling spirit, so we know that we're never truly alone because God is with us. Yes, that is the case. But where does the Bible recommend that we just suffer alone if we can help it? God has given us his people as a means of his grace to us. Even God gives us his people even as a reminder and an encouragement of his own presence. Fellow believers are there to help shoulder the weight of your burden, to carry it with you before God in prayer, and to pray for your strength and your growth, and to praise God with you for his love and his trustworthiness, to praise God with you for his infinite wisdom, and to trust in God's timing. And then finally, I want you to notice from this verse that joy in God through life's storms is a conspicuous, unique feature of Christianity, of the Christian life, and it has a positive impact on others observing our lives. It's a unique feature of those who belong to Jesus Christ that we can suffer and have perspective about the meaning of suffering because we know what Christ went through for us, because we can have joy trusting in God. That is a unique, conspicuous feature of the Christian life, and other people take notice. We'll see the impact that this has on the group because of Paul and Silas's behavior that comes from their hearts of trusting God. So we've seen here, hardship alters our, our perspective, reminding us that God is ultimately dependable and God is praiseworthy. 
Suffering also reminds us to lean on God, on, on God's people as a means of his grace to, to comfort us and encourage us and to help us. And then having joy in trials is a noticeable anomaly to the people around us, causing them to think about the uniqueness of the God we serve. And now, perhaps the most obvious uh, part of our text that presents the opportunity in an extremely unique way, read now in Acts chapter 16, beginning at verse 26. So they are in prison about midnight. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and he was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights or torches and and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out, and he said to them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And He, the jailer, took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. So the beating was severe enough that they had wounds that needed to be cleaned to fight infection. And he took them, oh, so after he he took them and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house, and he set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Earth-shaking life experiences afford opportunity for gospel witness and for gospel reception. Now, I I know you can tell that I'm calling this an earth-shaking life experience not just because it plays on the literal occurrence, but because it has that kind of impact on the jailer. We see this in our experience in one another's lives. We see, oftentimes, we'll talk about something like someone in a family or a friend passing away as an earth-shaking opportunity that people are asking questions. And so it's an opportunity, a particular opportunity for gospel witness, a particular chance for them to think and to listen to God and to repent and put their faith in Jesus. In this case, the earthquake shakes the foundations, which sounds like what you'd expect from an earthquake. But what's unique about this quake, possibly with God using unseen angelic activity as well, is that their bonds are unfastened and the prison doors are opened. That's an unusual earthquake, that it did that but didn't knock the roof in. You might wonder about the jailer's reaction when he is awoken by the earth-shaking commotion and he presumes that they've all escaped. He's going to kill himself. But with his job and in their culture, the level of dishonor or shame and the failure of his responsibility leads him to conclude that he should fall on his own sword. Luke doesn't give us every detail in these summaries of events. So we don't know how Paul knew in the dark that the, what the jailer was about to do, but my guess is that he's saying these things aloud, and Paul overhears him. And so Paul 
Paul overhears these plans and responds. What a surprise it must have been to this jailer to discover that the prisoners had not, in fact, already escaped, but that they remained. Why they had stayed can only be explained, in my view, that all the prisoners, not just Paul and Silas, understood this to be a result of God's hand because of their earlier testimony that was coming from these two men. The jailer knew that, these, that Paul and Silas were different. He had already heard their praise. He had experienced the earthquake, and now their choice not to flee the prison. I'm convinced Paul and Silas are viewing this as further opportunity for the gospel. This massive earth-shaking event corroborating the power and authority of the God they serve so they don't run. This is an opportunity. The jailer calls for torches, making it unlikely, I'll note for you, that he worked entirely alone. He wouldn't have been by himself. He calls for torches. Others who work with him bring in light, and he rushes in with trembling fear to fall down before the two missionaries. Again, connecting the previous testimony from them and about them with the earthquake and that they haven't escaped. And then the text says, bringing them out either from their cell at first or probably all the way out of the prison, which would make sense of what, what else happens, the jailer asks the right question. What must I do to be saved? He most likely means to be saved from judgment by your God, by this God that they serve. What must I do to be saved to not be judged by your God? The jailer now sees an opportunity to be right with the clearly supreme God that these men serve. And Paul and Silas give him the straightforward, fundamental answer that is just as true for all people as it is for this particular man. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. In fact, everyone in your household can be saved by this same means. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Note that here and also in verse 32, as with so many places in the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as Lord. There's clearly an intent calling Jesus Lord. There's clearly an intent to recognize his authority as part and parcel with belief in Jesus. His power and authority, that's why you call him Lord. To recognize and submit to him as, as the Lord who holds judgment for our sin in his hands. But who forgives and rescues, the one who saves when someone comes to him in this way, in repentance and faith. Now the short answer that they give will become a longer and more developed answer as the jailer goes and he gets all who were in his house to come and hear the word of the Lord. It wouldn't be surprising if the jailer's home is, is near the prison or perhaps even attached to the prison in some way. Some people surmise that when it says after the, the washing and the baptism that, that he, he brings them up, which could just be uphill, of course, but he, maybe their house is over the prison. But their response to the gospel, his whole household, when they hear the word of the Lord, is indicated in the next verse. The jailer takes Paul and Silas that same hour. Remember, it's still night. It's getting really late. <laughs> he takes them someplace to wash their wounds. And he and his family demonstrate that they've turned to Jesus in faith by being baptized at once. 
They may have gone to one of the nearby rivers or streams, but it may well be that there was a large basin or a bath for such things on or near the prison grounds. We know that this having a bath, is a, it was a common uh, fixture of these communities at this time. Now, I'm going to interrupt the progress of our thought here about opportunities for a second to talk to you about um, a doctrinal uh, issue that comes up right here at this point in the text, and we've seen it several other times in Acts, so I'm going to address it here because I have time. Now, the only real point of, of disagreement in the conversations amongst true Christians is not whether the jailer's household members are saved by his faith or by Lydia's faith, her whole household came to faith and was baptized, or Cornelius's household coming to faith and being baptized. There really isn't a lot of discussion about whether or not the family members are saved because of his faith. No, we collectively are convinced that Scripture teaches us teaches that each individual must respond in repentance, repentance and faith to the Lord Jesus in order to be saved. But there does continue to be disagreement about baptism. The Roman Catholic Church, just to back up historically a little bit for you, the Roman Catholic Church was already baptizing infants. And I'm stating this as a matter of fact, not condescendingly. The Roman Catholic Church was already baptizing infants, and then the 16th century reformers did not immediately break from this tradition, though many Protestant or Reformed believers have done so since then. Even today, our Presbyterian brothers and sisters do not baptize infants because they think it saves those children, but they do it as a symbolic rite in, in a household of genuine believers in describing it as bringing these children under the blessing of the covenant community, the church. By contrast, we are credo-baptists precisely because we view Scripture to teach that baptism is an obedient action by the one who has already taken the step of faith in Jesus, who has been spiritually baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ, 1 Corinthians 12, 13 being baptized by the Spirit into the family of God. That has already taken place. So baptism symbolizes repentance to be washed clean from sin and forgiven, and it also symbolizes being buried with Christ, dead to sin, and being raised to new life in God. So texts like these from Acts, where we're observing something that took place, especially during this time period. But texts like these are in themselves, they're not conclusive for us to know which way we ought to go on this. So th since there are details lacking like this, how old was everyone in the household? Does this, does this saying the whole household, talking about them as a whole household, mean that every single member, even if there was an infant, infant incapable of knowing the reason for baptism was also baptized? Would they have gone to a place with sufficient water for immersion? Would washing with limited water or, or sprinkling have been sufficient for this rite? To answer some of these questions, we really do have to ask more broad questions of New Testament teaching and the examples that we have on baptism. 
what seems to have been the obvious practice of the apostles, and of course of John the Baptist before them, what was the, pr- the practice that we, we see regarding baptism? Was it washing with a little water, or was it immersing someone completely? Not only was it the, the, their practice that we see in places where the specifics are given that they would immerse people, but the word baptizo actually means to immerse something in water. And then we have, again, explanations in the New Testament of the meaning of baptism, which, yes, as we said, does include the idea of cleansing from sin, but it also includes symbolism corresponding to the spiritual aspect of being buried with Christ and raised through faith to life in God. And remember that I've told you before, if you need to access some of the cross-references that I talk about, you can get the full text of this transcript online. So if you want to see references to being buried with Christ and raised through faith to life in God as a spiritual description of what happens in the Spirit and then symbolized in baptism, you can go to Colossians 2.12, Romans 6.4, and Galatians 3.27. Colossians 2.12, Romans 6.4, Galatians 3.27. The best answer then, we believe, is that they were baptizing by immersion and baptizing those making a profession of faith. It is not not at all unlikely in each case that they find sufficient water for this practice. It might be considered unlikely, however, that they were immersing infants, especially those who could not understand and respond to the word of the Lord preached to them. Okay, back in verse 34, this jailer courageously increases the things he he could get in trouble for. And now he's not only brought them out of prison and he's washed their wounds, and now he brings them into his house and he feeds them. And then there's also a note of of great rejoicing from him and from his household because of their belief in God. I do also need to tell you here that although the ESV has a translation here that is possible because rejoiced is singular and believing is singular, so the ESV has rendered this as uh, verse 34, he, he brought them up, set food before them in the second half of the verse, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. The most likely meaning of with his whole household, which is a single word in Greek, is that it corresponds to believing or to both the rejoicing and the believing. So except for the RSV tradition from which the, the ESV comes, Every other translation that I looked at has it so. Here's just one example from the New American Standard, Acts 16, 34. And he brought them into his house, and he set food before them, and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. So I'm just letting you know that although the ESV has this rendered slightly differently, which actually, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, so I won't say this is the reason, but that does leave room for the other interpretation, okay? Um, every, other, um, every other translation that I looked at has made the choice to connect this to the believing, the whole household having believed in God, just like this jailer. Regardless of these details, the point of it all has more to do with how God provides this gospel opportunity for Paul and Silas to proclaim Jesus in what appears to us to be a super unlikely manner. 
But they seize the opportunity to witness, and the Philippian jailer responds to Jesus as Lord. He responds to this opportunity. And now the final section shifts the focus a bit to an opportunity for doing good to others and the cause of Christ by drawing attention to injustice. Beginning in verse 35, Acts 16, Luke says this, But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. So the police, or the the lictors, these are probably the same men who beat Paul and Silas, were sent to give this message, now sent back. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. They had to ask them to leave the city instead of telling them to leave the city. (laughs) So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them, and then they departed. This is a longer phrase for you here, but certain freedoms and rights allow opportunity to highlight mistreatment and injustice, giving us opportunity for potentially protecting peace for the church and protecting freedom for gospel activity. You can tell that this is why I believe Paul does what he does. Why the magistrates decide to let them go in the text isn't clarified. Maybe they had heard from the jailer what had happened overnight, or perhaps they thought that a beating and a night in jail was sufficient warning that Paul and Silas would now leave. Furthermore, why Paul and Silas decide to remain in prison, or, or more literally, to go back into prison, that's not clarified either. The text says, therefore, come out and go in peace, so we know they had gone back in. Maybe they wanted to protect the jailer from personal repercussions. We don't know exactly the reason. But what it does lead to is Paul saying, wait just a minute. Since we're Roman citizens who were not given a just hearing, and yet were beaten publicly and imprisoned without a fair trial, let them come themselves and take us out. They need to know, and this community needs to know, what happened here. When the magistrates hear of this and what they had done to Roman citizens... Paul and and apparently Silas as well, they're afraid because because unfair treatment of a Roman citizen could mean that they would lose their positions. So they have right to be afraid. As they come and apologize, bring bring them out and ask them to leave the city, surely this too becomes a public affair. Paul's wise choice here provides a healthy balance for us. To know that, depending on the situation and our, and our motivation, depending on the situation and our motivation, it may be good for others and good for the cause of Christ if we should stand up for freedoms against injustice. God hates injustice, and God cares deeply about those who are not being cared for or are being mistreated. So here's the illustration for you. As American citizens... We have a great deal of freedom to highlight injustice. 
and to help the hurting in our communities and around the world. Perhaps nowhere else in the world, and perhaps nowhere, uh, and perhaps before, never before in history, perhaps nowhere else in the world and ever before in history has anyone been as affluent and free as we are. So do we thank God for that freedom only for our own sakes? Or do we thank God for that freedom in order to do good to others? This is an an opportunity we should continue to take for sending out missionaries, even for compassion ministry. We should take the opportunity. It also means that as long as we can, it's right for there to be some people among us who are on the front lines of protecting religious freedoms and giving a voice to those treated unjustly. Just as an example that is recent in your memory, when the COVID outbreak began, what started out as a desire to help safeguard citizens quickly became, in some places, a gross overreach by governing authorities. We can be thankful that there were faithful believers in places like Canada and California who stood up for religious freedoms, even suffering consequences for the sake of others. We can thank God for their courage and their wisdom to do so. In the case of Paul and Silas preaching in new communities, it was like this. They would go into a new community, and when you preach the gospel, the gospel transforms people. Therefore, the impact of the gospel brings challenge and change to the whole society. This is certainly not always met with welcome from the broader culture, which leads to persecution of faithful believers who who live according to Christ and testify to Christ. Realizing this dynamic, efforts to protect freedoms where possible is a wise course of action. Paul takes the opportunity. There's no reason to think that Paul was motivated by revenge or even the injustice against himself. But he cared about the cause of Christ, and he cared about this community not associating Christianity with being troublemakers. He even cares about his audience of of other Romans or Theophilus knowing Christians aren't troublemakers. And he cared that the church should have peace and opportunity to continue proclaiming Christ in this region. Notice the outcome. Lydia's home becomes a gathering place for the church in Philippi, a church that continues to flourish, even though Paul has to depart. Actually, it sounds like Luke stays behind. But this this community continues to flourish, even, even one that maintains an active ministry in financially supporting Paul's ongoing missionary endeavors. We learn in his letter to the Philippians that, that from this time onward, these guys, in fact, this church uniquely in Macedonia has a helping role in Paul's ministry. Even at the close of, of this ministry there, there in Philippi, thinking of opportunities. Paul and Silas encouraging them and departing. We see Lydia seizing the opportunity to use her home hospitably for the church. And the church seizing the opportunity to find a way to support the ministry even beyond their own locale. As we conclude this and wrap it up, I want you to be thinking about this as you review 
ponder this, make further application for your lives. God gives us daily opportunity. Sometimes when we're praying for opportunity, we should be reminded, perhaps we ought to be praying that we take the opportunities that already exist. Earth-shaking or not, every new day, God is allowing us another opportunity to respond to Christ appropriately in faith. Every day is an opportunity for you to respond in faith. Or do you take lightly God's patience, the scripture says, that you're afforded the opportunity to repent and be saved? Do you know for sure that you will be here later today or tomorrow? Every day is an opportunity for us to respond to Christ appropriately in worship. And if we are in Christ every day, even every hardship is an opportunity to trust in Christ's sufficiency and to lean on him. And for God to grow us in Christ In what ways do you need to refocus your heart and mind accordingly? We also are reminded from this section of Acts that it is God who saves. By the work of the Holy Spirit, through the power of the word of the Lord, the gospel. But we are the secondary instruments he chooses to use, making his appeal through us, Paul says in another text. What opportunities then has God already provided And in what specific ways can you be more proactive to testify about Christ with the goal of making disciples and to warn those around you, says the writer of Hebrews, and to spur one another on in the Lord, also from the writer of Hebrews. I encourage you to evaluate your life again and ask how you are responding to the opportunities God has provided. In that last section of application, if you, if you got one of the handouts, you know that there are a bunch of cross-references in there. I encourage you to go read those and to think about them and to even talk about them with others. Let's pray as the praise team comes back. Heavenly Father, we just stand amazed at who you are. We shouldn't be so amazed. All of these things that you have made are yours. Even we are yours. And yet we are still astonished at the power of our God to wield um, the, the things that you have created as you see fit. Lord, we thank you particularly for the way that you move in people's hearts and lives to give us spiritual life, and to give us the ability to respond in faith to Jesus. Convict us of our sin. Help us to admit it and to come to you in faith through Jesus Christ. Help us, those of us who are believers, to realize that the gospel isn't something that just happens to us at some point in the past, but that we continue to believe that we desperately need you, and so we abide in our Savior and we lean on him. And as we lean on him, Father, help us to seize the opportunities that you afford us each day. In Christ's name we pray.
Amen. Maybe you're here this morning realizing that you would love to have that kind of confidence. You would love to know that you can trust in God in this way. Well, God promises that he will not turn away anyone who comes to him through faith in Jesus Christ. We encourage you to do that today. You don't know what tomorrow holds. You don't even know what this afternoon holds. Come to Jesus today. And believers, aren't you comforted again to sing songs like these? To know that if you go through hardship, and you will go through hardship, when you experience hardship, God can deliver you at any time. He will be your sufficiency to see you through. And we need to be paying attention that he very well may be using this hardship as an opportunity to grow us and change us or as an opportunity to bless others. Let's abide in our Savior. Pray with me in closing. Heavenly Father, we trust in you to give us clarity. Our minds are filled with incorrect things and distracting things. We pray that by your Holy Spirit, the truth of your word would give us clarity to see you, to come to you on your terms, and to follow our Lord Jesus Christ. We know we need you, so help us. Help us to abide in Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.